Welcome to another episode of the Social Impact Journal with me, Jack Farron, your host. The Social Impact Journal is a global development show where I talk to the founders, innovators and experts driving change in our world. Today, we have a very fascinating discussion with Sitandra Hoover, a consultant based in the United States who is revolutionising risk management at the nexus of impact, inclusion and profit. If you enjoyed today's show, please make sure to give us a follow on our social media channels or subscribe where you're listening or watching. Good morning, Sitandra. I think it's morning in the in the US, if I'm right. It's right around lunchtime. Great. Um, yeah. So, uh, so we're recording this in in December. Uh, the snow has the snow has started in the UK today. Uh, so we're, we're he- heading towards uh, the cold months. Um, but really good to have you on the show, and looking forward to uh, to this conversation. We've we've had a number of episodes around inclusive insurance um, in in the first year of our podcast. But I think this one is going to be, you know, really looking into into some of those key key topics. So before we get started, uh, please do share an introduction of yourself to to our audience. Absolutely. So I am a social impact and inclusive insurance consultant. I've worked in the space my entire life. My father is a tropical botanist, and so my childhood was spent traveling around the world to very remote locations and countries and seeing various cultures uh, firsthand. And so that really informed the the path of the rest of my life and um, spent a decade working in international development and social impact with USAID and the UN, um, and then followed by an additional decade in traditional insurance. And now, for the past year or so, I have been running my own consultancy, really focused on that intersection of impact, inclusion, and profit. So, tropical botanist, if I heard that right. Correct. Mm-hmm. Wow. Where did you travel Where? to when you in oh, your childhood? All over. So, he's the world specialist in begonias. Um, and so, spent a lot of time in Mexico and in Indonesia. Um, and then later on, a little bit in the Philippines, and then a lot of time on my own throughout Latin America, Honduras, back to Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, etc. Awesome, awesome. So you said first ten years were in international development, working with in the UN. So what was your what was your first ever role that involved an element of of social impact? Absolutely. So I. Um, so the, the first role I had was working, uh, doing contracting and implementation of USAID and State Department programs. Um, so did that for a few years and then transitioned to go work with the International Organization for Migration, IOM. Um, and I actually started with them in Colombia. Um, so I had already done some work with USAID pro- previously. Um, and right around 2006, Colombia went through a massive peace process with the former paramilitaries of the AUC. Um, and with that became, came a large injection of capital and program management to help with the reintegration of the, the paramilitaries into Colombian society. And so I was hired by IOM to help to work on and then lead up uh, part of the program in Colombia. We had about 56,000 beneficiaries that we attended to with 32 field offices. And so I ran, if I recall correctly, five or six of those field offices um, and the bilingual liaison with USAID and reporting. Um, and so traveled to some of the most remote corners of Colombia um, on trips that required, you know, three, four forms of transportation from, you know, not only plane to bus to motorcycle to donkey and, you know, boat and kind of everything you could imagine. And um, definitely the best job I've ever had 
Um, and so I did that for several years working on that program and then continued for several more years um, with IOM um, and the UN system later on. Wow. So, so if I'm hearing right, so you've got, let's say, three stages, first in the international development, second in the, in the corporate space, and now third as a self-employed. But it feels like now you're, you're doing a bit of international development and corporate in terms of inclusive insurance. So exactly. I was going to ask what the transition is like from the international development space in the UN and USA into into the corporate. But again, maybe I can ask that question for corporate into into startup as well. Um, you, you've definitely gone through many different transitions. Yeah, it's very true. And, and it's interesting because if you if you look at it from the outside, they all look very different, right? Without real any intersection amongst them. Um, but there actually was a logic behind it. Um, so having spent my whole childhood all the way through high school and early college years, really focused on social impact on a global scale. So either with my father's work, I then also worked as an, a field anthropologist and archeologist and social impact. I did agricultural development projects for a long time. Um, and then with the UN system and USAID, um, and so within all of that, I really got to see how development works and what poverty looks like and solutions to poverty and what different approaches work in different locations and partnership models, et cetera. And so I loved the work and I loved the impact. And what I really found was that there was a real struggle of connecting that to sustainable long-term change. And so having run and managed a lot of programs, I then decided after about that decade or so working with the aid and working in, in development programs to pursue an, an MBA. And so I use that formal skills to really be able to complement the social impact, but to take it from a business perspective of how do you run a business and a program from the most per efficient perspective possible so that you can then essentially channel even more funds into the impact side, but you're really driving the operational efficiency of a business. And so that's where kind of the MBA was the link. Um, and so then after the MBA, that's then when I went and worked in traditional insurance. and. Um, I enjoyed the insurance space because, again, oftentimes insurance is really that moment of time when people are at their most vulnerable and, and you know, challenging moments. And so how do you look at insurance from the perspective of almost social impact, right? How do you provide a service to someone who has just lost everything? Um, and so at, during my time with aid and, and the UN, my focus really was on disaster response and conflict management migration. So there actually were some very specific themes that carried over into the insurance space. And then combined with my global experience, it worked really well in insurance because we did global insurance. So I, I covered 18 different countries and so um, was able to take that social impact, global experience. I'm a native level Spanish speaker. And so combining all of that together really helped in the insurance space. And so taking the knowledge, but then really learning how to run an efficient business and run an enterprise and build one from the ground up um, and looking at different models and, you know, systems and, um, you know, structures, et cetera. And so did that, um, you know, all sides of traditional insurance. I did commercial and personal. And anyway, I won't go down the, the long litany of path of, of insurance, but uh, you know, really saw it from all all sides and all angles of the insurance industry. And so as I nearly concluded about a decade working in the space, I really started to identify that I love the idea of inclusive insurance, right? How do you use insurance and insurance-based models, but for populations that are uninsured, underinsured, 
don't understand insurance, but then really specifically in the space of vulnerable and marginalized communities on a global scale, right? How can insurance be a model and a tool to help to, you know, provide uh, prevention and resiliency, but then also response during times of calamity and disasters and, and, and really as a tool to bring people out of poverty. And so um, this is actually my third time working as an independent consultant. And so I wasn't entirely blind going into it, um, but so launched it uh, earlier this year in 2023. So just about a year ago. Um, so it really is that intersection of all of my experience of social impact, with traditional insurance, an MBA plus a background in microfinance. Wow. So, so maybe to go back to the the MBA. So sure. you've come from the international development sector. You're now looking at how you can use the MBA, you know, in more effective planning of projects and implementation. What was the one key learning that you took away from, from that MBA process? To only pick one. Um, I think for me, one of the most critical pieces was learning business efficiency. And so, you know, there were two parts to it. One were financial models. Um, I had done, you know, a decade or plus work doing uh, budgeting and financial modeling and expense management. Um, but being able to combine that with the real hard skills learned in both my MBA and then during the decade in insurance of really understanding financial statements, understanding all of the connections of variables and movements and correlations between data um, and being able to really be able to see and figure out how you can run a streamlined and efficient business, but then also, you know, generate profit and whether that profit goes back to shareholders or it goes back invested into, you know, programs and initiatives of the company and beneficiaries. Um, so that was one. And then I think, you know, tangential and related to that is the operational efficiency side. So I got my background and my certification in Lean Six Sigma. And so really being able to understand, you know, look at process um, and process optimization and taking out waste out of systems and lag times. Um, so I, I won't nerd out on that one either. Um, but I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy like figuring out how to take, you know, waste out of the out of structures and create the most efficient model. But at the time, at the same time, making sure that it's being responsive and realistic and reflective of the specific environment that you're working in, right? That a model that works in the U.S. is not going to work in Uganda, and a model that works there is not necessarily going to work in Colombia. And so, really being able to understand how to develop these models and these processes and these structures that create efficiency and yet at the same time are really responsive and reflective of the local environment. Amazing. So so insurance. I have a question. Before we go into what inclusive insurance is, why does insurance have such a bad reputation? Because I used to work like that's the start of my career and I was 16 on cold calls to, you know, construction companies. And they didn't want to know about insurance until until their renewal date. I've seen it when we started working as rural inclusion in Uganda, doing research on health insurance and seeing the the you know the recipients, uh, the respondents, uh, and their opinions of of just the word insurance and the term. So, uh, for, for you having vast experience uh, across the world with insurance, you know you mentioned earlier that insurance is so critical and people really need it. You know at those yeah. key events in life. So why does it have such a, a bad reputation? And maybe what can be done to change the narrative? There are several factors to it. Um, the first one is, I think insurance 
generally gets a rad, bad rap because of likely um, legitimate uh, conversations around the denial of claims. Um, and I think that's really the number one reason, right? Is this idea that you pay into it and then when you need it, you don't get it. Um, there are several pieces that go within that. One is this understanding that you you pay into a system and you pro the, the premise is never that you're going to get 100% of it back, right? The premise is that you're paying into a model that is going to provide you that support and the structure that is needed in the time of you know when the disasters strike, right? When those unexpected events occur, um, but it, it's not it's not an investment, right? It's not like taking savings and investing it into you know an account that is then going to grow over time, right? That, that's not what insurance is, and so I think it's this misconception of what insurance is and what is the benefit of it and. You know how is it used in different in different countries and insurance is not a one-size-fits-all right like you know covering you know the you know your your personal belongings of your house or your car are going to be very different from developing and having insurance products for business liability or agricultural products right and i i think that's another piece too is that this misconception misunderstanding of the vastness of what insurance really is, right? It, it's not just one thing, right? It, it's it's multiple. And anytime you can identify a risk, you can create an insurance product to protect that risk. Um, and so unlike microfinance, which has just exploded over the past several decades, right, which is very clear, I think that's part of the challenge with insurance as well, right, is that, you know, how do you explain it in terms that people can understand, right, how and it's not tangible. Um, and so I think I think that is where a lot of the challenge comes in, right, is like paying in and what are you getting out and when and based on what and who is, you know, who is paying it. And I think another large component as well is is the timing when payouts do occur, right? For numerous reasons on both traditional and microinsurance, right? It's very difficult to get a payout very quickly. Um, and so people oftentimes will wait around a long time to get the payment from the claim. And um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons. And, and, you know, as you and I have talked about before, I think that's where education really comes into play and, and knowledge and awareness and explanation. Um, and then the other side on insurance, too, is traditionally insurance has very much targeted the middle market, right? High net worth individuals and companies need very specific types of products because if they have a large loss, they oftentimes can pay it out of pocket, right? And so the focus really has traditionally been on the middle market, which means that there is a large segment of the population that's just left out. Um, and so I think that's a big piece of it too, right? Is that micro insurance and inclusive insurance is targeting a population that has never really had access to these products and these services before. And so helping to understand what it is and where the benefit is um, and why it is needed it is really one of the big hurdles to overcome. Sitanji, you mentioned micro and inclusive insurance. So for, for those listening that, you know, may not have heard those terms before, uh, you know, this you can insure everything, as you mentioned, you know, there's your health, motor, liability. I know you can even insure cryptocurrency wallets these days. Oh, now, you can insure anything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember I, I read um, 
there's someone I follow on LinkedIn who uh, works at the Lloyds of London Museum and posts about different things. You know, I think there's footballers that have their legs insured and, uh, you know, oh, yeah. of, uh, even voice, their voice insured some, some of the yep. uh, weddings. Six. There's wedding insurance, right? Really? Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So, so micro insurance, you know, inclusive insurance, are they the same thing? Are they different things? And what are the key things that are insured in, 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 in those in those sectors? So I, I think that it one of one of that depends kind of on who you ask. I don't think there's um, standardized industry definitions around one term versus the other. Um, but generally speaking, I'll kind of give you my, my take on it is to me, inclusive insurance is using insurance products to help to include traditionally uninsured or underinsured populations into the insurance market, right? So that's looking at vulnerable, marginalized populations, people who have never had insurance before. So that that's how I tend to look at it is really that provision of insurance products to populations that really need it because they truly are the, the most vulnerable. Micro insurance tends to be the idea of taking traditional insurance products like property, auto, business insurance, you know, it's our, and instead of the premiums being what they would be for you and me, it's on a micro scale. And micro literally means that the premiums could be two, three, four dollars, um, you know, versus several hundred, right? Um, and so that, that really is what micro insurance means is literally traditional insurance on a micro scale micro premium scale two three four dollars for a premium you have to distribute the product you have to market and you have to pay claims yep. how does anyone make any money on that oh, so fascinating <laughs> and it's such a good question i think it's one of the biggest barriers to entry and expansion in the field so i think there are several factors one it goes back to what i mentioned earlier on efficiency right so if you look at a traditional value stream of an insurance company and you look at all the costs that go into making it operate, that is not a model that's going to that is going to be sustainable or viable for micro insurance products. So the first thing is figuring out how to take out as much of that expense as possible, right? And a large part of that is technology, right? So where and how technology can play in the space to remove a lot of the, you know, the touching, you know, you know, the, the, the handoffs, uh, you know, the payout process, the claims adjudication process, right? So, the, you know, the underwriting, right? A lot of things that would traditionally require human eyes to be able to do it because the risks are more complex or larger, the risk is larger, et cetera, right? Those are a lot of things where technology and just a simplification of, of a claims process or an insurance process can make it much cheaper right much less expensive to be able to to manage um so that that's one critical piece i think the other one is insurance works when there is scale right it doesn't matter what the insurance product is right you know here in the united states right there's long ongoing conversation around health insurance right and the united states has really been trying to push to get the entire u.s population to get health insurance not only because right it you know the cost of healthcare is so large. It's a, but the truth is the more people that pay in, the cheaper it is for everyone. And so that's the other part also when it comes to micro insurance or inclusive insurance, right? 
the more people that you can have that participate, the cheaper it becomes for everyone. Um, and so trying to go out into the field and sell an insurance product, you know, to farmer by farmer or, you know, business person by business person, right? Like that is a very expensive model with a very high barrier to entry and profitability. And so it really is focusing a lot on what are called group policies, right? Where you have a large group of population that, that you know, are paying in or already are participating in some other you know, scheme or structure, right? And then insurance becomes an additional add-on. And so it definitely is a viable model, but I think that's exactly the key, right? Is one, figuring out how you make your, you know, the business model, the process, the decision-making, et cetera, as streamlined, simple, and cheap as possible, right? With the fewest handoffs, um, and then being able to leverage technology as much as possible to to really be able to to make it efficient. And the second is the scale, right? Is being able to bring as many people as possible into the program so that it reduces the cost per individual. So, so you mentioned a farmer. So let, let's use a farmer as an example. So if I'm a farmer and I want to access an insurance policy, you're saying that m the majority of times I wouldn't be able to to access it myself as an individual. I would have to be part of a group policy. You can, and there are several companies that do that right now, right? Where there are people that go into the field and they go into okay. individual communities or community centers or education centers, right? You know, mm. local governments, et cetera, right? And they do sell the policies one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. Um, it just makes it a much more expensive business model. It's not that it's not possible, but again, it's just, it, it's one of the approaches. and. And I think what's also really key, right, that we were talking about is, again, like, it's not a one size fits all, right? And so in some countries or locations, that might be the better avenue because you actually might be able to get more people to participate. Um, but again, right, the point is to have that critical mass, right? It, it's, it's harder and more expensive to manage the individual policies. So if that's the avenue that's taken, right, you just really have to make sure that you have streamlined operations, you know, ideally with technology that, that back it up so that it, it makes it as simple as possible. And there are all sorts of complexities that, that come into that of, you know, technology in rural areas or where you don't have internet access, but that's a whole other topic of conversation. Is micro insurance and inclusive insurance mainly found in emerging markets or also in, in the US, for example? So I would say less so in the United States. Um, in the US, I would say we generally tend to lag behind in in those types of schemes and um, products. Mm. In Europe, it's definitely, it has taken off much more. Um, I would say that it is picking up here in the US probably with other terms, um, like we have crop insurance and agriculture insurance, right? Um, so there are other ways of talking about it. I think finally, the a lot of the insurers here in the US are, are starting to become uh, more aware of it, that the challenge we find right now is that insurance companies are pulling out of the most vulnerable areas like the southeast of the United States and, you know, Florida and the Carolinas, and, you know, Cape Cod of Massachusetts, right, where some of the greatest natural disasters are happening. Uh, but it's that challenge, right, because you can't use a traditional insurance business model to be viable in these places of natural, of recurrent natural disasters, right? You really have to rethink a different model. Um, and so to me, I think that that's also where our value of 
you know, of think of parametric insurance comes into play. Um, parametric insurance is rather than insuring the physical goods, the house, the car, the property, right? You're actually doing the income replacement associated oftentimes with those natural disasters. And so that makes it also much easier because you don't have to worry about like, okay, well, you know, how much was the house damaged? And, you know, what were the goods that were in the house? And so anyway, I think it's, this is just, in my view, a very exciting time for insurance to, to really rethink what are the risks? Who is at risk? You know, where is it located? And, and how do we rethink insurance and take insurance models from all over the world and combine them and use them in innovative ways, not for the purpose of reducing coverage, but for increasing coverage and access to coverage all around the world? Yeah, th- thanks so much. And yeah. I keep thinking about the the premium you mentioned, two to four dollars, and especially that's for a population that has a low understanding of insurance. Maybe they haven't, you know, interacted with insurance as a as something that's very common in their day to day lives. So you have the education piece and the capacity building element that's also needed in the marketing campaigns. I just, you know, I don't know if you have the numbers or any statistics to talk through the different percentages and you know how many people would need to be insured on that policy. For it to become for it to become viable i don't have the stats at the top of my mind i mean i will say that a policy that's two or four dollars in the united states or in another high income country would probably be very difficult to sell um but those are prices that are viable in lower income countries right you really have to take into account the cost of living of where you are right and so those two to four dollars those are in lower middle income countries in latin america africa asia um right but in the u.s right it would it would have to be lower than it traditionally you know than traditional cost of insurance policies but it certainly is not going to be a two or four dollar premium um but i think again right it it is viable but you need to take the market dynamics into account they like two to four dollar premium for a farmer who is making you know five dollars a month right that is high right but it's again it's all relative to it's all relative to what the the dynamics are um and i think that that's where you know thinking from the perspective of social impact comes into play right like you need to bring that perspective of how to develop programs that are sustainable and viable and then layering that in with the efficient business model on, on how to make it work. What role does the development sector play in, in this, in inclusive insurance, in terms of maybe funding new projects, pilots, or even in distribution of of the products that are built to, to lower middle income countries? Are they playing a, a significant role or is are they still lagging behind? So definitely many of the international development agencies are stepping into the space. USAID is, World Food Program, um, GTZ, right? A lot of companies, you know, mostly in the Euro- Europe and the US are stepping into the space. Uh, I think where one of the greatest opportunities is, is actually more on the partnership side. So anything that is international development funding is tied to very strict requirements of how those funds can be used for very finite periods of time. And that works really well in some cases. But to me, insurance is not short term. That that is a long term need. Um, And so that is a business model, right? Insurance is generally for profit, right? This is long term. 
And so I think where one of the greatest opportunities is, is, is really to forge those partnerships between the funding from the development sector to inject the capital into either existing or startup or even scale up, you know, insure tech and other micro insurance, parametric insurance companies. Um, where the funding is definitely needed, the models are being developed, but it's it's lacking that capital. And so I think that is where one of the greatest opportunities exists. And so really figuring out how to make that happen, um, because using a lot of times one of the biggest challenges is that also in the development sector, they don't want to use the funds to pay for premium. They want to use the funds, you know, either for the payouts or you know, to help to develop business models, but they don't want to use it to actually pay for the premium. And so that's where one of the challenges, you know, as well as, is, you know, how can we bring and pool together the funds and identify where the, the viable business models are to really understand and almost having development entities working like PE or VC firms, like private equity or venture capital firms, right? Um, is being another source of, of capital to be able to support for-profit long-term business models that are going to focus on inclusive insurance. Sure, and I've seen a lot about subsidization, especially on the agricultural insurance side, governments or development partners yeah. that may be subsidizing for a couple of years. But as you mentioned, insurance isn't meant to stop. The project isn't meant to finish. What are your thoughts on on subsidizing? Does it work? Can mm-hmm. people can people get get away from that, you know, in the long term? Does it become sustainable? I think there are several pieces. One, I think it depends on what kind of insurance you're talking about. I think if you are anything that's in the agricultural or catastrophic disaster response space, I do think that um, that subsidies play a significant role, right? If you think of what happened has happened in Central America and Mexico, I mean, all around the world when these massive natural disasters have hit, the economic impact to those countries as a result of the natural disaster has long lasting and multi-year consequences, right? So if we take it from that perspective, the use of subsidies to help to either A, replace income, lost income as a result of the natural disasters, or two, be able to use that those subsidies and that income to be able to reinvest, help the impacted individuals rebuild their businesses, will help companies in the longer term to rebuild their economies. So I do definitely think that there is a place where subsidies play a role. The duration and details are, I think are very nuanced and it depends on which, which country it is. I don't necessarily believe that there is a space where subsidies could or should be used for you know traditional micro insurance types of products. Um, but again, I think we're really at a place right now, if you look globally within the space of inclusive insurance, micro insurance, right? There are a lot of different models that are being tested all around the globe. Um, And so I think we're at a point of really trying to figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't work? What can we extrapolate that seems to really be scalable, you know, either regionally or globally? And, you know, what are different methodologies um, and really pooling some of that knowledge to be able to help, you know, model and scale you know, businesses that either exist or even are coming, you know, that, that are starting up. Um, but I, I think it's a fascinating time to really be involved in that creative, that creative thinking, both from the perspective of, of social impact, as well as traditional insurance and reinsurance companies, which play a massive role. Sitandra, you, you touched on natural disasters. So we're recording this episode uh, during the, the COP28. Now, uh, when you'll be listening uh, to this on New Year's Day, 
uh, I know COP will be will be over. But if you could ask uh, a delegate that is going to COP, a government official, an international development organisation, uh, and explain how insurance can be a tool to to really fight against the effects of of climate change, what would you be wanting them to to really uh, to really do and shout for, for for inclusive insurance in in 2024? And on the other side, let's take an insurance executive of a, of a national insurance, international insurance company sitting in the boardroom. How can they make insurance more inclusive? Such good questions. Can we spend an extra hour talking about this? Um, <laughs> um, so on the first one to delegates to COP, um, there are several pieces. One I think is really the importance on focusing on resiliency and prevention. Um, on understanding the events, right? Are not the natural calamities and the natural disasters that are happening are only getting more frequent and more severe, right? And from an insurance perspective, frequency and severity are the two critical factors for determining claims, right? So when you take that and you understand that the, the natural disasters are occurring more frequently and the economic impact is even greater, right? We need to be investing in the prevention side, right? And that can be across the board, right? That could be in zoning of where, you know, new housing and buildings are going up, you know, what kinds of materials are being used to, you know, to make sure that buildings are going to be resistant against the disasters, you know, when they do occur, uh, you know, elevating properties off the ground, having, you know, windows that won't break, right? Like there's so many different elements that we can think about on an agricultural scale or in lower income countries, right? How do we think about rural populations and helping them to be more resilient, right? Is that different kinds of seeds or fertilizer? Uh, you know, can we be building greenhouses to have backup, you know, in the case that does that, you know, agricultural products or does that, right? Like, anyway, just there are a lot of different ideas and options, but I think really talking about prevention and resiliency and, you know, having worked about a decade in insurance, to me, th that is the part that is always left out, right? Insurance talks so much and the focus is on response, right? And reaction, right? But the massive amount of data that exists and is held by insurance companies, we could use that to turn it around and understand where and how do we invest to make sure, you know, to, to reduce the cost of claims, right? To bring down the, the, you know, what we pay out, not only from the cost perspective, but because of the impact, right? The emer emotional turmoil and impact that happens to people when they are impacted by a natural disaster or some kind of a loss. Um, so to me, I think that's one critical piece, right? Is for delegates at COP really thinking about that the reaction is obviously going to be and will always continue to be a component, but starting to think more of the resiliency side, right? Climate change is only getting worse. The impacts are only getting worse. So how can we start to think about preparing and helping populations be more resilient to, to the change? So I think that that is one critical piece as it relates to COP. Um, on the second part of your question on, you know, insurance executives in the boardroom, um, I think one huge component to that is really thinking and understanding how do we reframe insurance models, right? There will always be traditional insurance models that we will need to use around our traditional insurance products that are sold on a global scale. But 
understanding that there are now more factors and risks that we didn't contend with even a few decades ago. What new business models can we put in place? How can we think about being viable and growing in markets that are repeatedly subjected to natural disasters? For in the US, right? Like Florida, the Carolinas, Cape Cod, et cetera, you know, the fires out on the West Coast, the freezes that are have been happening around Texas, right? That's just on the US side, right? But on a global side, right, it, it, it's still applicable, right? So how can we rethink business models to be able to be viable from a financial and business perspective? in the markets that are repeatedly getting hit because continuing to pull out of high risk markets one not only is not going to be viable because every insurance company is going to end up going to end up pulling out of markets and then saturating the ones that remain right so that's not viable there's going to be even more competitiveness prices will go down right which means the profit will go down so so the idea really is how do we become viable and profitable and impactful uh, within the markets that really are are subjected to to climate change. Wow, uh, we need to do this again soon. I think uh, <laughs> you know, uh, viable but profitable, you know, and impactful. And and that's the thing, you know, wh wh why did why does insurance actually exist? You know, it's there to really support those that that, that have an unexpected event or disaster, right? Yeah. So if all Sense insurance pull out of those high risk areas. Who's going to support them? Isn't that the point of insurance, you know? Um, Cassandra, it's, it's been amazing to, uh, to have you on the show. And as I said, we need to do this again soon, hopefully, uh, you know, in person when I'm, I'm next in the US. Now, I there's one it. question I, I asked to all of, all of my guests. And you've worked across lots of countries in lots of different spaces. And you shared some of your, your experiences with, with me and, and, and our audience today. But... If you could have one page in your own social impact journal for, for a young professional who's just starting out their career in any sector, maybe that they're, they're unsure what to what to do in this current world going into 2024, what would you share with them? I think there are two things. One is using your voice. Uh, I think speaking up, sharing ideas, perspectives, learnings, I think are critical. Um, and the second one is, and this is something that I have grappled with my whole life, is really trying to find the one area to play in, right? If you ask me what I care about, I mean, I could write you a book, right? From children's issues to, you know, insurance, right? Across, right? There's a very large, broad scale. But the challenge with that is that to really move the needle and make an impact, you really have to pick something. Um, and so, right? whether that's an industry, whether that is a, you know, a particular company, right? Whatever it is. But I think there will always be issues that call our attention. And, you know, for those of us that really feel called to act, there will never be limits that call our attention. And so being able to pick, you know, those one or two where we can say, this is really where I'm going to dedicate my time and my energy. And I know that the others are out there and I can address those, you know, in free time, but this is where I'm really going to focus. And so, you know, it, whether it's an in international development, right? And you you kind of narrow down what it is in development or it's in the business space and you kind of find what that industry is, you know, but 
I think really just having some of that clarity um, and, and picking and acknowledging that there is a lot more out there, but but this is what the the intentional direction is going to be, I think will really help to, to elevate your voice and to elevate the impact that you ultimately can make. I think that's not just great advice for, for a young professional starting, but but maybe for all of us listening and, uh, and me also. Um, maybe if I like should take connect- my own advice. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. So... If you'd like to connect with uh, with Sandra, um, if you're watching on YouTube, you will have seen her social media pages running through and also her website of her consultancy firm, which I know we didn't talk a huge amount about, but B3C Global uh, running down the side of your screen. If you're just listening to the podcast, then you'll see in the show notes. Sandra, thank you once again for, for joining the Social Impact Journal and look forward to chatting with you soon. You too. Thank you so much, Jack. It's been a pleasure to be on here.